This is The Guardian. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates, coming to you from Gadigal Land, and this is The Full Story. In the face of the housing crisis, politicians, governments and town planners say there's one problem we're not talking about enough. NIMBYs. Short for not in my backyard. They say that all around the country, homeowners and local residents are opposing development in their backyard. And in some cases, this is holding up much-needed affordable housing and construction of new homes in the areas where they're needed most. Some are now calling for a new approach to change the NIMBY mindset in Australia. Today, how NIMBYs are making the housing crisis worse. It's Tuesday, the 25th of April. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. So Elias, why have you been reporting on NIMBYs lately? I think we're hearing the term a lot more um, as the housing crisis worsens or at least gets a lot more coverage in the media. Elias Fasante is a transport and urban affairs reporter at Guardian Australia. And I think as the crisis has progressed, we're aware that some of the figures around how many new homes we're building and how many homes are available, they're pretty stubborn and they're not growing at the rate that we need them to grow. Mm. And when you look closer, you really start to see just how pronounced that effect of local opposition getting in the way is. So, Elias, before we go too far into the NIMBY problem, I want to talk a bit about the housing problem. You've been looking at where new houses are most needed in the housing crisis. Tell me about that. When you look at the setup of Australian cities, they're geographically centred around a CBD, a centre. It's not just where we go to work. There are services there, medical appointments we go in for. And as a result of that setup, we've kind of built homes initially when there were few of us close to the city, and our cities have expanded around that. Mm. I think a large part of that has been due to the fact that when we think of a home, we mostly think of a, a suburban house with a backyard, a driveway, and I think a lot of Australians do want that. But at the same time, new homes being built like that today... Uh, an hour and a half drive from Mm. the city, and they're not on train lines. What kinds of issues does that create, building homes further and further away from transport and key services? 
there were really alarming studies. I think there was one last month. There's no longer a single local government area across Sydney or Melbourne where houses are affordable for early career essential workers like ambulance workers, nurses, policemen. And the longer that we don't address this problem, you're going to have nurses commuting for three hours round trip each day. And I think we're kind of at a point where we're asking ourselves, how big can Sydney get? How big can Melbourne get? We can't just keep building homes out, establishing new suburbs on the outskirts of our cities, concreting over them and and building homes there. And you really see that in how our cities look today. I mean, take Melbourne, for example, the Australian Architecture Association, they love putting out this stat that Melbourne's residential density is so low, it's even lower than Los Angeles, which around the world is kind of seen as this example of poor planning where everyone's car dependent. And that's really not an efficient or sustainable way to keep building our cities. Planners often point to just how much more expensive it is to build infrastructure like roads, communications, water on the outskirts in new suburbs than it is in established suburbs. It can be up to four times as expensive in Australia. And obviously the solution is that you can't just keep building out, you've got to build up. Right. So how influential are NIMBYs in stopping this development in the inner cities where it's sorely needed? I think NIMBYs are an important and growing part of the problem. They're really not the only factor in some of our issues with housing supply. The Grattan Institute, their economic policy director, Brendan Coates, says the key problem is that many states and local governments are restricting you know, medium and, and high-density developments to appease local residents. I think there is this real deadlock at the moment, basically, between housing planners who know that the sensible solution is to make modest increases in in just how dense some of those established suburbs are and that NIMBY opposition, which which can be fierce and can really delay an ability of a government or a developer or, or even an individual to build a home. They often just look to the easier alternative, which is to build out. Can you talk me through some of these deadlocks that you've seen play out in cities around Australia? What are some of the worst examples of NIMBYism that you've been looking at? You really don't have to look very far. There are examples that come up, particularly in local media, about this all the time. Mm. Earlier this month, there was a great example from Sydney's Northern Beaches, which has a relatively low level of density, but is pretty close to the city. And some of the submissions opposing affordable housing being built uh, were pretty startling. One local wrote, we fundamentally disagree with affordable housing in our street. Mm. But this isn't just about affordable housing, this is about all housing. There are examples across Sydney. Sydney's inner west particularly has quite a few of these oppositions. But but you look to the city's east at the most recent state election, you'd be hard-pressed to find a local candidate, whether they be Labor, Liberal, Greens, especially some of the Teal candidates too, were campaigning on opposing propositions for developments. You go to Melbourne, especially around Melbourne's inner east, very similar tone of things. I think in Brisbane as well, and a lot of those suburbs are telling their councillors, no, we don't need more. So often when you think of NIMBYs opposing something, it's one development in one suburb. You think how much of an impact can that really have? But when you zoom out and you look at our cities and the types of housing being built, where it's being built, it does start to add up. Can you talk us through why NIMBY local residents are against things like affordable housing or apartments being built nearby? 
Well, I think it's a really emotive issue. So much of the Australian idea of a home and also of the way that we build wealth in our lives, it's really geared around this idea of finding, you know, your forever home with your family and building your life around that. So when you've invested and built up a life around a particular home and a neighbourhood functioning in a particular way, whenever there's change presented, it's understandably concerning. But certainly a lot of urban planners I talk to say there really is quite a lot of capacity to increase population in those areas. But I think the other aspect to it too is when you increase the supply of housing in a particular area, when it becomes more crowded, it becomes less exclusive to live there and as a result people's homes will be worth slightly less. Right, that's kind of the crux of it, surely. If your house is worth $1.6 million when there's a whole bunch of other fancy houses near it and it's worth, you know, 900000 when there's a bunch of apartments nearby, that's a pretty big motivating factor. Totally. Why are NIMBY so powerful, Elias? A lot of people might be surprised to hear that just group of local residents could affect whether a development is made in that area or not. What is behind all this? In Australia, by and large, most housing is approved on a council level. These are the councillors you elect at local elections, and it's a pretty direct relationship at the ballot box. So basically, you do see a lot of people, especially at local elections, running on a platform that they will be stronger, that they will stand up to developers. Mm. The local councillors will position themselves as being in tune with the stresses of the local community, how it's tough to get out of the suburb on a particular morning or how we need more buses, not more people. And they'll paint the state government, the level of government above that, who deals with larger scale planning issues. They'll paint them as as a bit of an enemy. And that pattern's been pretty tried and tested. And as a result, local councils frequently turn down or scale down propositions for medium and high-density development, basically not wanting to get voted out at the next election. Next, how to break down the power of the NIMBYs. Laura Mefiotes here, one of the hosts of Full Story. It's Guardian Australia's 10th birthday, and to celebrate, we're hosting a special live recording of Full Story at Vivid Sydney in June. We'll be talking about Australia's natural environment and how to save it. I'll be joined by a panel of special guests, including Independent Senator for the ACT, David Pocock, Dr Dennis Rose, a Gunachamara traditional owner and conservation expert, national co-convener of the Labor Environment Action Network, Felicity Wade, and Guardian Australia's own environment editor, Adam Morton. The event is in Sydney, and you can buy tickets on the Vivid Sydney website right now. Just search for Full Story. Okay, we really hope to see you there. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. 
Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Elias, we know that migration is bouncing back after the pandemic, and some sections of the media are really laying the blame for the housing crisis on migrants who are snapping up rentals and new homes. Are we focusing too much on migrants, though, and not enough on NIMBYs? I think in short, yes. Focusing on migration is not going to answer the problem. Migration is important to Australia for a range of factors, but when it comes to housing, yes, they'll require a place to live. Mm. Where I think we're set to receive about 650,000 migrants across this financial year and next. And Traditionally, they tend to live in established communities closer to cities. I think it's something just under 90% of migrants will live in capital cities. But they also are a huge part of our construction workforce. And so migration is actually going to be a really important part of the answer to our housing shortage. The other thing to consider here is that migrants tend to come to Australia with a much more open idea in terms of living with density. So families moving to Australia move as a collective unit and they live in homes with more people. So that could mean that they're much more open to the idea of living in an apartment. Mm, more likely to be a multi-generational household, essentially. Exactly. And at the same time, Australia's existing population actually is going the other direction. There's really good data out, especially as a result of the pandemic, that Australians tend to be wanting to stretch out more. The average number of people per household is actually decreasing. Mm. And as a result of people wanting more of their own space, that trend is actually going to contribute to the need for an additional 140,000 homes in Australia. And that's that's huge. So how do we break down the power of these powerful NIMBYs? I think it's about forcing that conversation about how, as a city, as a country, we'll take in new housing and grow. So a big part of the problem is that in our cities, suburbs are zoned in a particular way for what type of things can be built there. In some suburbs in our big cities, especially those closer to the CBDs, really significant parts of them, you're only allowed to build detached suburban homes. And we've seen just how difficult it can be for people wanting to change that dynamic. So rather than having all of those battles on a micro level, the state government could come in with changes that would, on a wholesale level, flip the equation for developers, make it much easier for them to come in and build a sensible level of density without expecting really long battles with local council. This could take the form of a code, which would basically be a framework for developers from the state government saying, hey, we need more of these types of homes. If you can come in and build them according to these rules we have along what we want, it'll be a lot easier to get approved. You know, we'll take down some of those hurdles. Now, that wouldn't necessarily be a green light for developers to come in and do whatever they want. But by clearing some of those obstacles and incentivizing that as a business choice for developers, well, that would really change the situation. Ultimately, any solutions here have to rely on a discussion, on bringing people together and getting a consensus. On the federal government level, they've actually acknowledged that. They're now talking about an accord to basically bring together the levels of government below them, state and councils, 
and to really get the ball rolling on that discussion about what types of housing we should be building. If we build more apartments and townhouses, this kind of medium density housing in our cities, we do need people to live in them and buy them. Is that what people want for their forever home? This concept really isn't outside of the Australian DNA. Like, yes, there's that that strong Australian dream of owning a home in the suburbs. But when you look at Sydney and Melbourne, we had a strong tradition of building apartment blocks back in the early part of the 20th century. You know, especially Art Deco apartment buildings are icons of some Sydney and Melbourne suburbs. And when you look at the enduring appeal of those types of buildings, even now, people are really drawn to them. In the past few years, I think that idea has shifted in our minds. When we think of density, we think of skyscrapers, defective buildings where people have lost what they've spent on their homes due to a shoddy job. And it's those old Art Deco buildings, you know, which are really structurally built quite well where you can make renovations to them. They're the ones whose values keep going up. And I think in that kind of microcosm, that shows that Australians understand that there is that value in in medium density housing. We've done it before. It does serve a purpose. It's about recasting some of that fear of high density and being able to see yourself build a life in something like a townhouse or an apartment and, and make it a family home. So if part of the problem here is just changing public attitudes, is that already happening? Are there people who are pro-development, who are pro-social housing in their own communities? Yeah, the flip side of NIMBYism, which is YIMBYism. Yes, in my backyard. And it's people realising that we actually need to change the way we're doing things, realising the benefits of increasing the mix in their suburb, getting more infrastructure, even if that means a reduction in, in their house price. And the extension of that, would need to be in people power and actually mobilising politically at a local government level. I was having a chat to a pretty prominent city planner who does a lot of government work, and he was saying that you might see people running for local councils who are running on a platform of, we need to increase it. And so you might actually have, as that tide turns and more people realise just how that attitude of nimism can fail a city, you might actually have more confrontation and more of a battleground of ideas on the local council level. Elias, I'm wondering if the housing crisis is already beginning to take some of the shine off the NIMBY movement. Is the tide of public sentiment turning against it? I think there's a bit of a shift, but I think it's still picking up pace. I think it's largely come about as a result of where we are in terms of the housing crisis. For years, it has just been near impossible for people to buy their own home, especially young Australians, if it's not without the help of their parents. Equally, the rental market is at a record high. And that mindset of of NIMBYs, I think some are having to think twice when they really felt strongly about preserving that suburban way of life for bringing up their kids years ago. They might now be at a point where those kids are adults themselves and they're looking for a home and they're facing the fact that they're not going to be able to live anywhere near their parents and that existing community. And some of those people holding onto those homes and vocally opposing new development around them might be wanting some affordable solutions so they can see their grandkids more often. And so I think as this slowly turns from being something that was mostly affecting younger and newer Australians to being something that everyone is now having to grasp with, ultimately the tide will have to turn. So I think part of the discussion is understanding the repercussions if we don't act and we don't find a sensible way to grow. I guess the real question is just how long that's going to take. 
That was Elias Fasante, transport and urban affairs reporter at Guardian Australia. You can read his latest reporting on this issue titled Living with Density. Will Australia's housing crisis finally change the way its cities work? And we've linked to that on the full story page as well. This episode was produced by Karishma Luthria and myself. Sound design and mixing by Daniel Simo. Our theme music is by Joe Koning. The executive producer of this episode is Miles Montagnoni. I'm Laura Mephiotes. Thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.